I wonder if you can remember a show that used to be on the BBC, maybe about 10 years or so ago, called Hustle. It was a sitcom based about an elite group of criminals in London. They were fraudsters who tried to pull off the most extraordinary cons. It was a great watch, but in a sense, it's strange that it ever became so popular. Because most of, not all of us, hate to be deceived. The show glamorised the hustle, the con. The people we see were the gang of criminals who became the heroes of the show. But whenever we hear about scammers in real life sending fake emails or making fake phone calls to the elderly, trying to convince them to buy insurance products that they don't really need, for products that they don't even own, or blood boils, doesn't it? We hate deception. Just think about the number of calls you get about PPI every day to consider how much people hate being deceived and the length they will go to to receive justice and retribution. None of us like to be deceived. This morning in Joshua 9, we have just read and we encounter a story of deception. But as I hope we will see, it is a story that is about much more than the importance of honesty and how we treat people who treat us dishonestly. It's a story that I think unfolds in three scenes. In scene one, we see that Gibeonite deception. And then in scene two, we move on and see Israel and their self-sufficiency. But it's in the final scene of this chapter that I think we see the key that ties the two, the first two scenes together. And that is how God's plans and purposes unfold even through this unlikely incident. So scene one. When God had sent his people into the promised land to claim it, he'd given them some very clear instructions. They were not to worship the gods that they would find there. They were not to marry the inhabitants of the land. In fact, they were supposed to, as we read, wipe out all the inhabitants of the nation of Canaan so that there would be no temptation that they might ever become like them. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see again and again how God's people constantly fail to do this. But there was one more restriction placed on them. They were also not to make covenants or treaties or agreements with the other nations in Canaan. See, this was a a largely tribal society where treaties and covenants between nations were common. We saw that in verses 1 and 2 where the kings of the other people groups had come together, joined together in treaty so that they could destroy Joshua and Israel. All the other nations, apart from this group from the city of Gibeon, the Gibeonites. See, the Gibeonites had heard about the great victories that the Lord had given to his people. They were afraid to rise up against them. And so go to great lengths in order to make it look like they were foreigners from a faraway land and not the next door neighbors. The Gibeonites come to convince Joshua that Israel should make a deal with them so that they will have peace. They devise a plan. It's a cunning plan. They prepare props. They get old steel bread and worn out wineskins to make it look like they've journeyed for a long time. They arrange their costumes in just the right way. Worn out clothes and sandals to make it look like they've really traveled very far. It's a deception that really would have made quite a good episode of Hustle back in the day. 
But in the midst of all their deception, there is a little inkling of truth. Because they do say the reason they have come is because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him and all that he had done in Egypt. That is why they came. They had heard about this great God, Yahweh, who had done amazing things. In fact, their words are almost identical to the same words that Robert was looking at a few weeks ago with Rahab in Joshua 2. Rahab said, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. See, they had heard of the greatness of God, but they'd reacted in completely the wrong way. The difference being that when Rahab heard about the goodness of God, she cast herself on his mercy and grace. Whereas the Gibeonites tried to deceive their way into the people of God. And as we will see, that deception would have great consequences for them. And yet we can't be too hard on the Gibeonites, I think, because there's something commendable in what they do. The other nations are set to go to war with God's people, but the Gibeonites are set for peace. Whatever their motives, still they wanted to make peace with God's people. Matthew Henry, the famous Puritan Bible commentator, has an interesting comment on this whole incident. He says, While other people heard those things about the defeat of Jericho and I, they were irritated thereby to make war with Israel. But the Gibeonites heard about them and were induced to make peace. Thus the discovery of the glory and grace of God in the gospel is to some the savour of life unto life, but to others of death unto death. It's the same sun that softens wax and hardens clay. I'm sure we've seen that in our own lives, haven't we? Someone hears the good news of the gospel and is amazed by it and runs immediately to cast themselves on God's grace and mercy, just like Rahab. They respond in faith and repentance. Like the Gibeonites, their desire is to make peace with God. But others hear the gospel, maybe in church week by week, year after year, and still say unchanged by it, uninterested, and like the little quote, maybe even hardened by it. That is the mystery of the Spirit's work in salvation. The same sun that softens wax hardens clay. So we see the Gibeonites were set on deception. But the Israelites in the second scene were set on self-confidence. In verses 14 and 15, we read that the Israelite leaders and Joshua fall foul off this trick. They make a pact, a covenant, a peace treaty with the Gibeonites because they believe their ruse. The con was on and they fell for it. They did the very thing that God had warned them not to do. But maybe you're thinking, what's the big deal? Why shouldn't they make a pact with another nation? Surely it was the wise thing to do. Surely the wise thing is to guarantee peace. We might also find ourselves in sympathy with Israel because it wasn't really their fault, was it? The Gibeonites did have a really good disguise. They did put up a really good ruse. As scammers go, they were pretty convincing. But like we've already seen, God had called his people to possess the land. 
They were not to make covenants with other nations. Why? Because as we've seen over and over again in Joshua, God's promise to his people was go and do not fear, for I am with you. He wanted his people to trust in him alone for the victory. It was not by might or by power they were to win, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And as we have already noted, it was common in those Old Testament times for weaker nations to join more powerful nations. The natural thing would have been for Israel to find strength through military might. Kind of like an ancient version of NATO or allied forces coming together to be stronger. But that was not God's plan for his people. He wanted them to seek him for security and safety alone. So by Joshua and the leaders making this pact with the Gibeonites, they were implicitly saying, we're not actually sure that God's good enough, that he's strong enough, that he is actually able to give us the victory. They were doubting God's word, doubting God's promises, and so living by sight and not by faith. That's where we see the subtle self-sufficiency creeping in. Last week we saw that in chapter 7, before the Israelites attacked Ai, they didn't seek the Lord. So Achan's sin was not revealed and the battle was lost. But following their turning to God, their dealing with Achan's sin, the Lord's anger was turned away and eventually they did get victory over Ai. And then we see a pattern emerge in the book of Joshua. Chapters 5 and 6, we see this victory over Jericho that's quickly followed by a failure to consult the Lord in chapter 7. In chapter 8, we see a victory over Ai and then a failure again to seek the Lord in chapter 9. You see what's happening? They get the victory, they trust in God, but as soon as they achieve it, they trust in themselves. It's a subtle pride, a a subtle self-sufficiency that has taken root in God's people. John Calvin once noted that men are undoubtedly more in danger from prosperity than adversity. For when matters go smoothly, they flatter themselves and are intoxicated by their success. It's true, isn't it? Think of those times when you have felt closest to the Lord. Those times when you have prayed most earnestly, when you have relied most on him. I'm willing to guess that it is likely those times when you have most felt your need of him. Most when we have been in adversity and there, and often it is in those times of struggle that we are drawn closer into him. We must be on our guard against this complacency and self-sufficiency, not presuming on God's blessings. I once heard Dr. Tim Keller say that we should not let success go to our head, nor let failure go to our heart. We shouldn't let success go to our head, nor failure go to our heart. Because it's often in success and failure, adversity and prosperity, that our hearts are revealed. In those moments that what we really trust in is totally exposed. So each of us must be careful to examine our hearts and ask who or what it is we are trusting in. Who or what are we relying on in our Christian life? Are we fully reliant on God? Or do we implicitly or maybe even explicitly think, I can earn my salvation. I can do this. It's good that God's there to help me, but I don't really need him. When things go well for us, Do we direct praise and thanks to God? Or do we try to keep the glory for ourselves? 
There's a story told about the Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon. A man once came to speak to him at the door after he had preached a particularly powerful sermon. And as people normally say to me most Sunday mornings, the man said, that was the greatest sermon I ever heard. And you are the greatest living preacher. Wasn't a joke. (laughs) Spurgeon looked at the man and said, Yes, the devil told me the same thing ten minutes ago. It's the danger for those of us who mount pulpit steps, who put ourselves in public view, that pride can creep in. That little story illustrates the need for each of us whether we proclaim the gospel publicly or privately, to be careful that pride and self-sufficiency does not creep in. That's not to say that we are not to give praise where praise is due, that we are not to encourage each other. But we must be careful to rightly acknowledge that every good and perfect gift, and that includes our talents and our gifts and our successes, are given to us from our Father in heaven. Scene 2, the Israelites' self-sufficiency. But then, in verse 18 to 26, we come and see scene 3. And I think it's this final scene that ties these two previous strange scenes together. Because in reality, this chapter is not all about a Gibeonite deception, nor about the self-sufficiency of the Israelites, although it does address those issues. But ultimately, as with all of Scripture, it is about the actions of a sovereign God who is working all things out for his good pleasure to achieve his ultimate purposes. So when the Israelites discover that they have been duped, they grumble and complain to their leaders. But to their credit, the leaders determine not to break the oath that has been made. They commit to keep their word. They understand that two wrongs will not make a right. As a result, the Gibeonites confess their act of deception. Finally, they cast themselves on the mercy and justice of God. The consequence for their deception is that they would be made woodcutters and water carriers. That was simply an ancient way of referring to household servants. The Gibeonites' lives would be spared, but they would spend their life as household servants. And yet, even in that little detail, we see God's grace and mercy extended. Because this grace is greater still, because the house that they would serve would be no normal house. It would be the tabernacle. They would serve the altar. They would supply water and wood for the worship of God. These deceptive people who were once outside the covenant people of God would be brought in, given a place of privilege right at the very heart of Israel's worship. They would witness the act of redemption daily. The Gibeonites would play a long and significant role in the history of Israel. When the land is divided among the tribes, it was the city of Gibeon that was given to Aaron and the priestly tribe. 400 years later, it would become the site of the tabernacle where God's presence would be seen to dwell and he would be worshipped. The site of worship for kings like David and Solomon. We read that at least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. Much later on, when God's people are carried off into exile and return to rebuild the walls of the city and the temple, there are Gibeonites among them. You see, these people who had wormed their way into God's community by deception have come by God's grace to be at the very center of his plans and his purposes, often acting with more faith and integrity 
the many of the native Israelites. So I think there are two core lessons here for us. Lessons about discipleship and mission. The first lesson about discipleship. Both Rahab and the Gibeonites came to seek God's mercy with a weak understanding of who he was. But it was their small and often imperfect faith that was nurtured and developed in covenant community that would see each of them play significant roles in the people of God. And so it's a reminder to those of us who are older in the faith that we are to extend patience and grace and mercy to those who are younger and new to the faith. To those who we see doing things the way we wouldn't do it. Acting in ways that we probably wouldn't have wanted to act. May we be slower to judge and quicker to offer guidance as well as room and space to allow them to grow in their knowledge of God. But it's also a reminder to those who are younger in the faith that you don't need to be discouraged that you don't have it all together. That you still make mistakes and don't understand your Bible as well as you'd like. Many mature saints in church this morning will testify to those very things. But instead, commit yourself to the community of God's people. Draw alongside those older saints. Watch how they live. Be present in public worship. And by God's grace, you too will grow in godly character and Christ-likeness. But also, there may be some here this morning feeling like they would love to come and throw themselves on Jesus' mercy. Maybe you feel you have messed up too much. You've gone too far. You used to identify as one of God's people, but no longer. Now you think, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. The Gibeonites, I think, illustrate that wonderful truth of Jesus, that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He had not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In the words of an old hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If we tarry till we're better, we will never come at all. That's the invitation of the Savior this morning. The second lesson I think we learn from Joshua 9 is about missions. Back in Genesis, God had made a promise to Abraham, a promise that he would bless the nations of the world through him. And we see that blessing of the nations unfold progressively throughout Scripture. In small ways, we've already noted how Rahab is brought into the covenant people, how the Gibeonites are brought in. But as we read through the Old Testament, we'll see others like Ruth the Moabites and Naaman the Syrian general, and many others who will slowly be brought in. But it's with the birth of Jesus that that light to the Gentiles intensifies, that it shines brighter. Remember his commission to his followers? The words of Jesus in Matthew 28 is really a reiteration of God's words to Abraham in Genesis 12. Go and make disciples of all nations. Bless the nations of the world by telling them the good news about Jesus. The blessing of the nations that begun at the start of the Old Testament with Rahab and the Gibeonites continued to spread throughout the scriptures, exploded with the New Testament church and has seen waves of blessing expand for the last 2,000 years. But as we will sing in a few minutes, 
The task is still unfinished. There are still many who have not heard. And the opportunity that we have is to join this amazing wave of missions. To bring the blessings that we have received in Christ to be a blessing to the nations. I think one of the most exciting things about missions at the moment is what is often a very controversial topic. Immigration. However you feel politically about immigration, I am not commenting on that. But it is undeniable that the influx of people from other nations coming to our land presents us with the greatest opportunity in history to bless the nations of the world. We see that through the international meeting point on the Lisbon Road in Belfast. But for us as individuals in Coleraine, where once we would have had to travel to India or Poland or Africa to go and make disciples of the nations, how we can do that in our workplaces, in the places where we drink coffee, on the street where we live and at the school gate. So my prayer this morning is, as we have already sung, that the church would rise with power and love, this glorious gospel proclaim, so that there will be great celebrations on that final day. And each of us will be there and will behold that great multitude that no one could number from every nation, where people from tribes and peoples and languages will stand before the throne of God, clothed in white robes, declaring together salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is truth. We thank you for the, the promises and also the warnings of your word. For it encourages us, but it challenges us. So Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to cast ourselves on your love and grace and mercy, trusting that wonderful truth that salvation is off the Lord. Lord, we pray that as we come to understand and know that truth for ourselves, that we would go and share that truth with others, with all who we will meet this week on our front lines. Father, wherever you would take us, may we be heralds of that good news to the nations who you have placed around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.